Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Remember that our goal is uh, to let God speak. So keep your Bibles open to make sure that what I'm saying is what the text says. Let's pray. God of all glory and grace, the triune God of the Holy Scriptures, you alone are God. We are gathered here because we worship you not just right now during these moments, but we worship you all the time. Because of your Holy Spirit, making us alive so that we respond in faith to Jesus. We worship you. Father, help us to be convicted again by the truth of the gospel. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Thank you for others who have gone before us that follow in those footsteps well. We learn from their strengths. We learn from their mistakes. Guide us today in your word as we look again at an example of handling disagreements in the Christian community. Equip us for handling situations ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Not all disagreements are created equal. We squabble over petty things. Sometimes we bicker over nothing. We're just grumpy, and we selfishly let that spill out on other people. Or we take personal offense at something, and we forget what it is that we're striving towards together. But some disagreements are more foundational to what we believe, and they're foundational to how we behave, and they have broader impact on our lives and the lives of others. In Acts 15, there's a pretty significant disagreement within the Christian community that has been brewing and begins to boil. All disagreements threaten unity among believers, but some disagreements threaten uh, threaten the very truth of the gospel, which is the foundation and fabric of right relationship to God, and it's what binds us together in Christ. Although our emphasis this morning is going to be verses 13 to 21 of the 15th chapter of Acts, let's back up to get our minds into the flow of the situation since it's now been, even if you're going through Acts together, it's now been uh, some three or four weeks since our last uh, discussion of Acts 15. So let's get a running start at this. We'll begin back in Antioch where the disagreement picked up steam. Remember that Antioch is the church where a significant number of the the believers are Gentiles. And it's this church, the Antioch church, which confirmed the Spirit's leading to send Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. They were now back in Antioch, having reported everything and staying some time to serve again among the believers there. But a conflict in the church that's taking place in Antioch proves actually to be symptomatic of a broader disagreement within the whole Christian community. What is our expectation of the Gentile believers? How were they saved? Paul and Barnabas seek help, and the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem work to reach consensus and to communicate that decision. That's the bulk 
of Acts 15. So back up with me to Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And now jump with me to verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And think back into Acts chapter 10, and you'll remember that that was the episode where uh, uh, Peter received a vision, don't call unclean anything that I have made clean. And the message was, no, go to the Gentiles. And so when messengers came from Cornelius, Peter obeyed and went. And he presented the gospel to, to Cornelius and to his household, and they were saved, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so now, uh, verse 8, and God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? A reference to gaining perfection by the law. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And now James adds further clarity and wisdom, Acts 15, 13 to 21. After they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Verse 21, for or because from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, there are Jews spread out in almost all of these communities and there are synagogues located there and they are God-fearing people who regularly read the law and follow the law of Moses. Just to kind of wrap our minds around the whole thing, I understand chapter 15 as having three parts in this handling a consequential disagreement in the Christian community. The first part is an urgent defense of the gospel, which is why Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem. They're not able to resolve this thing, and so they, they are going to seek extra help and gain consensus. And they realize that this is a broad problem, and it's, it's uh, impacting all of the church. 
And what their, their defense of the gospel is so urgent, and you hear, heard it in the words of Peter, it's against a works-based salvation. Anything other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then there's a middle section here that I'm calling the conclusive arguments in the discussion, and those come from Peter and James. Peter's conclusive argument largely corresponds to that first emphasis, the urgent defense of the gospel by faith and not by works of the law. James's conclusive argument reinforces this while also recommending some behaviors the Gentile believers that they could take in order to facilitate regular fellowship with the Jewish believers. And then finally, there will be the decision disseminated that they must not compromise on the gospel, but they can compromise for the sake of fellowship. So in the letter, they say, we must not compromise the gospel. Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace through faith. But there's a wise compromise in behavior that they recommend for the sake of Christian fellowship between the two groups. And that emphasis that's sent out will be our our emphasis next week. The letter, I'm sorry, that's sent out, verses 22 to 33. So today we're really in the second half of the conclusive arguments section. James's reply now has two main points. First, he confirms Peter's testimony and the testimony that Paul and Barnabas have also given about the Spirit's work in coming upon the Gentiles without them coming under the law. They're not being circumcised and they're not obeying all the ceremonial and civil law, and yet the Spirit of God has come upon them just as he has with us, Peter says. So how does James confirm that? He uses the testimony of Scripture. That's part one of his argument. Part two of James's argument is then he's very clear about what his conclusion is. And you discover, we discover the reader, we discover just how influential James's conclusion is among the brothers. Now, before we get into these second two things, though, I want to pause for a second in verse 13. When we're going through Acts, we know a lot about Peter, we know a lot about Paul, we knew quite a bit even about Philip and Stephen, but this James we don't know quite as much about. So I just want to pause for a minute in verse 13, because what James says bears a great deal of weight, so we need to consider why that is. And I think doing so will prove fruitful for us, because our our overall argument today is that we should learn from James. James starts out by saying in verse 13, brothers, listen to me. Why should they listen to him? Why do they listen to him? They definitely listen to James. Why is that? Why does the church listen to James? Our best understanding, which is pretty well substantiated from external and internal evidence, is that this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Calling him the half-brother of Jesus would mean that he's the first kid of both Mary and Joseph. You recall that the New Testament teaches us that that's because Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. So the next oldest son after Jesus is, is James. Now, like his other siblings, James tells, or John, the, the apostle John tells us that James evidently did not believe in Jesus during the bulk of his earthly ministry. In John 7, 5, it says, says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Although his mother Mary was among the faithful disciples of Jesus during his three or so years of public ministry, James and his siblings were not. However, we have really good reason 
to believe that 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 changed, especially for James after Jesus died and rose again. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, he tells us about one of the, the, the resurrection appearances during the 40 days that Christ was with uh, his people after the resurrection and before his ascension. Paul tells us about another one of these, and he says, then Christ appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So James received an appearance of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this James then was one who was formerly known as the unbelieving younger brother of Jesus. And now he's known as James, a follower of Jesus, and a servant leader in the Jerusalem church. We don't know the details of how he rose to such influence, but we do know that he seems to have become the most prominent elder in the Jerusalem church. Maybe you remember in Acts chapter 12 when Peter is forced to depart Jerusalem because the persecution has grown so hot now on the, on the apostles in particular. In fact, the other James, one of the, the apostle James, the, the elder, the brother of, of John, I said elder, the older, <laughs> so James the greater, not James the lesser, but the apostle James, the brother of the apostle John, was beheaded by Herod. And so under that kind of heat, Peter is put in prison, but then Peter the, uh, is miraculously, miraculously escapes from prison, and that night he goes to John Mark's mom's house, and he tells some of the brothers, go tell James and the brothers what has happened, and then he departs. So we're already seeing how influential James is in the Jerusalem church, and then we come to Acts chapter 15, and here we see he's even more influential as a servant leader in the church. In fact, what James recommends becomes the consensus sent out by these leaders. He also seems especially well-positioned as a devout Jew and a follower of Jesus to command the respect of the party of the Pharisees that we read about in verse 5. They listened to him. He was a devout practicing Jew, and they listened to him. And honestly, I'm sure it doesn't hurt that he has familial proximity to Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus. I doubt that that hurts his, uh, why people pay attention to him, but I, I want to remind you that familial proximity to Jesus would be of no use were he not spiritually close to Jesus and living out his new life in the footsteps of Jesus. That's where the respect from others is coming from, and that's as it should be. He's close to Jesus and following Jesus. Just a couple of questions of application before we move on. Does your life say to others, transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus? Does your life say to others, transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus? And secondly, instead of worrying about trying to become influential, Shouldn't we leave that to God and focus our efforts on growing closer to Jesus so that our character and wisdom will mirror his? Focus your attention on how God will measure your faithfulness, not how men will measure your impact, but how the Lord, the master, measures your faithfulness. Okay, so they listen to James because he has proven himself a trustworthy and wise follower of Jesus and a servant of his people. Now, how does James make his point? 
Here's the way I phrase the question. What does James wield to bring forward the weight of God's own testimony? The word of God, the scripture. James's argument is this. What Peter describes and what Paul and Barnabas are describing accords with scripture. Did not God's word foretell such days by the mouths of his prophets? That from the Gentiles he would make a people for his name? Verse 14. With, his, with this, the words of the prophets, prophets, plural, he says, agree. He quotes one, but he says the prophets agree. Although he quotes Amos on this point, he could have quoted Zechariah or Isaiah, Hosea or Jeremiah. This is another place for me to remind you that I have biblical references here. And so if you ever want to see the, the texts that are being referenced and other cross-references and things, you can always go to our website later in the day after a service and access uh, the sermon. So not just the audio or video, but you can see my notes. So you can see other places where you would notice these things in Zechariah, Isaiah, Hosea, or Jeremiah. On this point, the Old Testament does agree. And, and that means, what he says agree means to be of one mind, to match, or to share the same sound like a symphony. What is the point on which they harmonize? Evidenced by the quote from Amos. It is that after this, after a time of discipline from the Lord because of Israel's disobedience, that the Lord himself will return to fulfill his promise. And he will take the fallen and ruined tent of David. And that, that here is a reference to the house, the dynasty of David. And he will restore it. The reason that James quotes, quotes this, this text, this concept, is to show that the beginning of those days, restoring the house of David has come through Jesus, God's Messiah from the line of David. Just as Peter quoted Joel in his sermon at Pentecost to show that the pouring out of the Spirit means that the last days are now here in Christ, Acts 2, 17 to 21. And because God has now done this, so too the time is here that the Gentiles have been invited also to come, verse 17 that the remnant or the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, which includes all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So here's the point. God has returned to his program promised to Abraham and to David, which includes not only an invitation to Israel, but to the Gentiles also. And Amos confirms that James, what James himself is demonstrating, it is God who says these things, making them known from of old, is how the quote ends. This is not new news. Scripture teaches that this was, would happen, and it is now here. We are living in the last days. What happens next? The culmination of the kingdom of God. That's what happens next. What happens next? People will stand before God and be divided up as sheep or goats. What happens next? The believers will stand before their master and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he will also measure, what did you do with your time and your treasure and your talents? James brings the weight of God's own word to bear on the situation. What does God say? Listen to some parts for, uh, of the quote for emphasis. I will return. 
I will rebuild twice. I will restore so that mankind will seek the Lord and the Gentiles will be called by my name, says the Lord. As James emphasizes to the devout Jews in the crowd, in the group, and to everyone, it should be so to us. Scripture communicates what is true, and therefore, Scripture must confirm our experience. What Peter and Paul and Barnabas are describing is consistent with what the prophets foretold, and it's happening without the Gentiles being circumcised and without the Gentiles coming under the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law. So here are a couple of applications. Spiritually sensational things could be from the Spirit, and they could not be. Are there not other spirits? We must test the spirits according to, one, their submission to Christ, and two, to the teaching of the apostles, according to 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. The spirits must submit to Christ and to the teaching of the apostles. And clearly, the teaching of the apostles submits to the consistent testimony of the rest of Scripture. So our teaching and understanding must submit to Jesus and the apostles in the way that they handle Scripture. I want to recommend to you a simple book by Kevin DeYoung about the doctrine of Scripture. It's called, oh boy, (laughs) I'm stuck, Taking God at His Word. I could have asked Winston. We just finished reading it together. Taking God at His Word. We submit to God's Word. Secondly, here's another application. When you're aiming to see God convict hearts so that others will turn in faith to Jesus, and when you're striving to challenge believers to continue growing to be like Jesus, what is our weapon? Is it not God's own revelation? What does God's word call the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6, verse 17? The word of God. What is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces right into people's souls and reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your wisdom and your words? No, the word of God, according to Hebrews 4.12. Is it not the living and active word of God? This is how we must view the word of God. This is how we must submit to the word of God, and this is how we must use the word of God. Together, the words of Peter and James in our text in Acts 15 appear to settle the dispute. And it perhaps especially what James concludes. So now let's turn to what James recommends as a solution and, and suggests as a course of action. How does James' judgment, to use the word in the text, how does James's judgment guard the gospel but promote sensitivity and fellowship? Therefore, my judgment, he says in verse 19, a conclusion or a decision based on careful evaluation. James's recommendation first agrees with Peter not to trouble, not to burden, the letter will say, not to burden the Gentiles with things that are not necessary for their salvation, but to suggest abstinence in areas that are particularly offensive to Jews for or because there are law-observing Jews dispersed in pretty much every major city where the gospel is presently being advanced. So the first is what should not be compromised. But the second is concessions that the Gentiles should make in order to promote united fellowship 
with Jewish believers. Mostly, or, or that's mostly, save the one that is a moral imperative for sexual purity according to both the law and Christ. So first, we should not trouble them greatly and unnecessarily putting a hindrance in their path by heaping on them the burden of circumcision and and keeping the, the whole ceremonial and civil law of Moses. The conclusion has already been made from the arguments. It has been shown that we have three extremely trustworthy witnesses, Peter and Barnabas and Paul, plus the testimony of God in giving the Spirit to the Gentiles. That's another testimony, plus the clear fulfillment of the inscripturated Word of God. I think we should know by now that you should not place any other burden on people other than grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And unfortunately, we see the tendency of mankind to want to do something. That can't be all that there is. The problem is we're trying to maintain control of our salvation, but salvation is in the hands of God. What God has has said about the salvation and the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ should not be in doubt. We are all saved by grace through faith and not by these works. As Peter said in verses 10 and 11, why are you putting God to the test? And then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved, Jews also, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will the Gentiles. This is the gospel, not only for the Gentile, but for the Jew. We must guard the gospel truth that we are not saved by works of the law, but that any man, woman, or child of any ethnicity or heritage is made right with God only by faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.16. The Apostle Paul in this this phase of life and ministry right now, Acts 15, um, between Acts 11 and Acts 15, the Apostle Paul has already been developing this argument further to say that anything else is no gospel at all. And he specifically targets such legalism, such Judaizing, Galatians 1, 6 and 7. So James wants to make sure the Gentiles are not troubled by Judaizers, but he also challenges them to be sensitive to Jewish sensibilities for the sake of Christian fellowship. So he says we should write to them, Gentile Christians, because it's confirmed now that they are indeed already Christians. And we should recommend that they willingly abstain from things that are particularly offensive to Jews, whom they are extremely likely to be in close contact with, according to verse 21. Three of the four things are dietary restrictions that are very important to Jews because of the law. And they're related to the circumstances of of these churches. Uh, The Jews would believe that food sold in in the markets in some of these Gentile cities that had had first been set before pagan idols, that they would not want to eat such things. They, They wouldn't eat strangled meat with the blood still in it, or from any other meat with the blood still in it, or, or from eating the meat itself. Those are the first three things that they could abstain from. So these, these churches would be regularly sharing meals, which would bring such issues front and center. 
What do you eat? What do I eat? What should we not be eating together to cause offense? No need to create an offense where such things could be avoided. One of the abstentions, though, pertains also to the circumstances that the churches find themselves in in more Gentile contexts, but it's related to the moral law of God, and it's taught by Christ. So this one applies to all people of all times in all churches. Keep yourselves apart from sexual immorality. The Gentiles, the Gentile believers would need to demonstrate themselves far above reproach in this matter because the pagan culture from which they come, from which they came, was wantonly licentious in sexual promiscuity. It was like our culture has become. It's just a joke. It's just a big joke. If you don't teach your children that this is not God's design for you and that what God says is actually what's good, God is always telling you what is best. And what the world, the way the world is treating this is literally destroying us. Sin leads to our destruction, both now and forever. They needed their purity to be obvious partly for the sake of fellowship with Jewish believers who took this matter very seriously. I wonder if our sexual purity is blatantly obvious to one another and even to outside observers. What do we laugh at? What do we act like is no big deal? How do you practice purity. And then secondly, I wonder if it's apparent in us that we will willingly forego certain freedoms and preferences for the sake of each other. What about other people? My wife and I sometimes tease our daughters that uh, it's not really teasing, we're being serious. That etiquette is to be thoughtful of the people around you. You chew with your mouth closed to be thoughtful of other people. You don't leave your clothes lying on the floor to be thoughtful of other people. Can we not forego certain freedoms and so-called rights, we love that in America, (laughs) for the sake of other people? Back to the overall point in our text. James reaches a conclusion that the gospel must be protected from legalism, but that Christians can and should prefer one another above ourselves for the sake of fellowship. So these are some important recommendations for the Gentiles toward that end, for the sake of fellowship. Before we leave this text this morning, let's review and confirm what we can learn from James in the midst of handling disagreements in Christian community. Learn from James and from those who listen to and accept his wisdom. First of all, nothing matters more than who we are before God. Nothing matters more than relating rightly to God. James has clearly come to see that Jesus is, in fact, Lord and Savior, and that the life he now lives belongs to God through Jesus. James's life has been transformed by Jesus and is all about Jesus. The humility and wisdom in his words arises from this close relationship with Jesus. Because God's word is inspired and infallible, it is inerrant, 
It is breathed out by God, and it is the flawless communication of a flawless God. James clearly believes that the greatest tool at our disposal for knowing God and knowing his will is his word. As recorded in the scripture, the Bible. Are you thankful for the excellent translations of God's word that you have in the English language? Are you not passionate about other people having the word of God in their native tongue so they can know God? and be transformed by Jesus Christ. We cannot compromise on the gospel because Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Not even the Mosaic law and the Levitical system was meant to make us permanently right with God. Only God can do that himself when by his grace he grants us saving faith in Christ alone. James knows this is true, so even though he is a Jew, he knows it isn't right to burden Gentiles with what were God's requirements for Jews. The new covenant in Christ is new for a reason. But we can compromise in given situations where preservation of unity and fellowship with believers needs to be a priority. So long as we're able to do it in a manner that doesn't threaten what we know is true from God's word. This almost always plays out in areas where we have to give up some of our rights and freedoms and preferences in order to prefer others above ourselves. Go review Romans 14 and 15a on that topic from the Apostle Paul. And now I encourage you to look at some of these further applications that I've given to you to think about later. If you don't, if you don't, uh, if you didn't grab one of the notes, please feel free to grab one. There are more questions for you to ponder. Are you striving to be a leader who is submissive to God, especially the authority of Scripture? Do you display a closeness to the heart and character of Jesus? I encourage you to know yourself and to grow in areas that are not your strength and to be patient with teammates. Or another one, are your feelings, even strong ones, consistent with the whole counsel of God in Scripture? Are you submitting to the letter and spirit of God's word? Are you quick to seek the counsel of and listen to those among you who are wiser and saturated with God's truth and consistency of character? I'm going to read this part just because I think my own wit is cool. There are those among us who, under a hood of silver hairs, hide an engine that throttles with a love for God and the things of God. We do well to let them take us for a drive in their experienced seats. Do you run the risk of majoring on minors instead of majoring on majors? Are you willing to submit to godly leaders who are close to Jesus and submissive to Scripture, especially when they reach consensus? Do you posture yourself as ready to prefer the needs and preferences of others above your own preferences and freedoms, or so-called rights? If you walk away with nothing else from today, please leave here meditating on this. The difference in James was Jesus, a submission to Jesus. The strength in James was a submission to the word of God. And the wisdom in James was a call for others to submit to Jesus and to the word and to prefer others above themselves. Especially in situations where disagreements arise among us, we do well to learn from James. 
Pray with me again, and the praise team will come and lead us in a song before we receive the Lord's table. Father God, we, we really do want to submit to your word. Actually, there may be some among us who are resisting your authority altogether. Maybe they want to act like you're not there, you're not good. God, we pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit through your word to help them see that you are a good and a loving God and that sin against you is is literally killing us and it leads to our destruction and will separate us from you forever. Help us to repent and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be right with you now and forever. God, I pray that your people will go from here this morning just thinking more about these things in your word. Help us to apply them to our lives. Help us to remember that all of these things we're studying are to remind us that we worship you with all that we are and all that we have. Use our actions and our mouths for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.